Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Story time. I live in Wisconsin and I'm a hunter slash fisherman. One day I decided to take a hike out on some property I had been given permission to use for hunting, fishing, or whatever. This land had a lot of ponds and big hills and this day I decided to cross over a shallow point in one of the ponds to explore an area of the land I had never been on before. After crossing, I hiked up a big hill that overlooks some of the land, only to find a small camp. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Side on the other side. This was strange because not many people had access to the land besides me and I knew for a fact that no one camps there, especially in this hard-to-reach area. I assumed it was a trespasser camp, and decided to investigate. I first checked to make sure I didn't hear slash see anyone before going down to the camp. On multiple trees there was a piece of wood nailed to the tree with the word hell scratched slash written on it. There were piles on piles of books just sitting in stacks scattered around the camp. I flipped through some and some were written in different languages, others described what looked like rituals or something of that sort. There was also remains of a fire along with a couple of logs used for seats. 
I also was looking higher in the trees and saw ropes about 20 to 25 feet up the trees, not sure why slash how they were there. At this time I was pretty freaked out and got out of there. I would have taken pictures but because I was walking though the waist deep water, still the shallowest part, I had left my phone in the vehicle. I went back about a week later but the water level had risen to the point where it wasn't easily crossable. This was in the fall so when it was winter I returned, crossing the ice only to find everything gone from the spot. I did let the landowners know as soon as I got back to my vehicle but no one was ever caught. Easily one of the spookiest sights I've seen in the woods. I grew up with about 600 acres of protected wildlife land bordering my house. My parents bought me a compound bow that came with six arrows. I always had six arrows, no more no less as I numbered each one with a magic marker. I had an area of woods that had a natural alley about 75 feet long way that I could shoot my arrows at a big pine tree at the end of the alleyway I placed a plywood square in front as not to hit the tree itself. I used to shoot all six arrows and then go to the tree and pull them out and repeat. One day I shot all six but one had missed one, number four and I spent literally hours looking for it as not wanting to lose it. No luck even when my brother home from college break came and helped. I shot at that tree for the next two years until I finally broke my last arrow and promptly stored the bow and moved on with life. I left for college and my parents sold the house right after. 20 years later I find out the house is up for sale so take my wife to show her where I grew up. We look through the house then I take her to the trail that led to where I used to shoot. Right down the alley 5 feet off the ground directly shot and that old pine tree is arrow 4. And it looked exactly like it did when I lost it, no fading, cracking etc. A funny thing was is that tree never had a mark on it so it wasn't as someone would see it and think people were shooting arrows into it. The plywood, which was also not there never let the arrows penetrate. Besides my brother being in those woods maybe two times ever, I had never seen another human in those woods. Weird. I've been working out at sea on a fishing trawler for nine years. The creepiest thing is always when people lose the plot out at sea. We had just come into land for fuel and set back out again. We had one guy give us all mints which we ate and then about two hours later he went crazy. Writing symbols all over the walls and talking gibberish. All I could think was, imagine if those weren't mints. We gobbled them up fast enough he could have given us anything. We ended up having to bring him back in and he was picked up by mental health services. When they contacted his family all they had to say was, oh yeah we were wondering when this would happen. Thanks for the heads up dickheads. Another time we picked up a guy from another boat because we were coming back into dock and they wouldn't be for some time. All the other vessel said about him was he needed to go ashore. Well, as soon as he sets foot on our boat he asks if there is a locker he lock himself in so he doesn't get anyone sick. First red flag. He then wears earmuffs to dinner, when asked why he replied it was to block out the voices in his head. Another red flag. By the time the boat was slowly making its way into the harbor this guy was doing the haka, a Maori war dance, and using a stick as a tea. He then proceeded to throw all his bags overboard, 
started stripping off throwing his clothes overboard before he was held down by some of the senior officers. They had to hogtie the guy to stop him from harming himself or others. Luckily it was only for about 30 minutes police and mental health were waiting at the wharf for him. Last trip we had a guy quit one shift saying he was sick. Whatever, this job isn't for everyone that's cool. Well he started going crazy in the last three days before we came into dock. He locked himself in a locker in his cabin with seven knives that he took from out locker room. He was convinced that his mom and dad were on board and we were hiding them from him. There's were two other crazy people as well but he was the loosest. So yeah. I always worry more about the people I'm stuck out at sea with than I am about some mysterious light or whatever. It goes to show how little the vetting process the company I work for does and also how much our mental health support system is failing. The state park I work for is really one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been. It has a nice mix of beaches and trails. And you couldn't ask for a better environment to work in. It's the Emerald State Bay Park in Lake Tahoe. I don't even know if I should say the name. I wonder if that makes people flock to the area. This place already does get really crowded. I've been a park ranger for quite a few years and this is the busiest place that I've ever worked. This experience I had happened in 2019. I had spent some summers out here with my family when I was a kid. My dad really liked to rent a boat and hang out on the water all day. So I loved this place for a long time. We would kind of alternate between here and Lake Havasu for our summer vacations. I never thought I would end up being employed here though. During summer holidays the place can be a madhouse. I was on duty on the 4th of July that year. And it was a really crazy day with all those people. After my shift I decided to go up to Inspiration Point. To take in the fireworks show. Lake Tahoe puts on one of the best shows in the country, if you ask me. I got myself some snacks and found myself a good spot to relax. I knew all the little secret areas so I wasn't near any people. The show started off as usual and was fabulous. About halfway into it I was looking off to the west a bit and I saw several orange orbs start to float up toward the sky. I remember thinking something like, those must be some sort of those Chinese lanterns. Then as I was watching them I thought maybe they were embers from the fireworks or something. But they were incredibly bright. So that didn't really make sense since the embers would be fading. They floated up and they seemed to form into kind of a W shape. They started to look like they were remote controlled or something. At first they had looked like bright orange lights, but once they were up high they looked brighter and whiter and started moving around. Then they kept going higher and started looking like stars. They obviously weren't embers, but then, sort out of the middle of that W shape there was this craft or whatever you want to call it. The zoom down lower and flew over my head. It was too fast for my eyes to really catch what shape it was. Like fast as a bullet. It was still pretty high up there but the lights on it were brighter than anything I've ever seen. And right after it passed over. There were like these little twinkles of light all in the sky right over my head. Like, right over my head. Not over the lake where the show was happening. The twinkles of light started making these incredible light streaks. I was beside myself. 
It wasn't like any technology that I had seen before. It sounds a little crazy that I had noticed this stuff while that amazing show was going on. Maybe it was because I was used to scanning the sky almost every night. The lights were behaving in this strange fashion. I can't quite explain it but somehow those twinkles of light suddenly burst into dozens of lights in the sky. All of a sudden they were moving together in mass. Like some kind of squadron or something. It made me feel kind of anxious. But for some reason I was also filled with this strange exhilaration. I just sat there in amazement, unable to comprehend what I was seeing but knowing it wasn't normal. You could see the stars steady behind them as they were moving across. Then the dozens of lights came together, and went into a triangle formation. Whereas before they were just individually flying forward. Once they formed the triangle I noticed that they were flying left to right, up and down. It was really surreal to have this amazing fireworks show going on. And there I was completely ignoring it. And watching this inexplicable sideshow. It wasn't that high in the sky. But not unnaturally low either. But eventually the triangle seemed to just start ascending higher and higher, until I couldn't see the lights anymore. I have never seen anything like what I saw before that night. For the next few months, I kept watching the sky, trying to take notice of anything strange. But I never saw anything on that grand of a scale again. I'm sure people must think that what I was seeing was part of the show. But it absolutely was not that. I know there's some military activity not too far from here. So I don't know if it could have been connected to some testing or something like that. But, I really don't think so. Anyway I really appreciate the chance to share this here. I'd like to see something like that again but now that I'm looking for it. It probably won't happen. This story isn't too creepy but it scared me and put how dangerous lakes are into perspective. I was in northern Maine snowmobiling on a lake, on part of it with not many people. The sun was going down so it was getting dark. My dad was riding behind me when he said on the mic, Bluetooth headsets, that there was some slush and he got stuck. I turned around for him and got stuck 10 feet away from him. We tried revving the sleds out, but they just kept digging deeper in the slush. We started with his and would get it a few feet then it would get stuck. The path behind it started to fill up with water. Quickly we were standing in over 8 inches of water trying to get them out. We eventually had to have one person pull the ski while the other hit the gas and got my dad's out. We put his to the side then got mine out. We gunned it out of there. Now we're weary about going on the lake unless it's just ice on top. Even though under the slush there was thick ice, seeing water pouring into the trail you made was scary. So my uncle took me and my brother hiking in the mountains of northern Greece. It was a couple of days hike, camping along the way, starting near a beautiful gorge called Vikas. It wasn't the most popular hike but it was a known route, with at least one hostile type stop for travelers along the way, and we ran into a few people. Most of them were local, and every single one of them told us the same thing. Watch out for Albanians. There's Albanians in these hills be careful. Avoid the Albanians. Well, we hadn't been worried at all, and kinda laughed off the first couple, 
But after a few more we started to take it a bit more seriously. And started to get more and more worried. So, after a couple of days, we were still a couple km away from the town we were aiming for as a finish point when it started getting dark. We pushed on as far as we could, but it was a fairly steep downhill, and so we eventually gave up and decided to camp one more time, to avoid any falls in the dark. This was not particularly comfortable, as we were on a slope, so we ended up foregoing the tent, and just lying in sleeping bags with feet pointing downslope. It was pretty stony as well, and we had to keep picking stones out from underneath us. It was dark. Like, really dark. We could just make out the glow of the nearby town over the skyline but there was virtually no light around. And no sounds of civilization. But not no sounds. Every few minutes, there'd be some noise. Like pebbles rolling down the hill. Twigs. Shuffling. Whispers on the wind. Common sense told us this was natural. Gravity, wind, the odd small animal. But after a couple of days of being warned, we were just getting more and more terrified with each noise that we were about to be kidnapped or murdered by Albanians. After a couple of decidedly sleepless hours of noises, and rising panic, we cracked, and decided that we'd rather risk falling down a hillside in the dark than be murdered. So we rapidly gathered our things and using whatever light sources we had, made our way to the town. In retrospect it was probably one of the stupidest things I've ever done, but I'm not sure I've ever been so glad to reach a village. Even found beds for the night. And we never actually saw a single Albanian. I don't even know why they're scary. If you're Albanian, I'm very sorry. I found a cave while working as park ranger. So, I was out on a routine job patrolling a remote area of the park when I saw it. The small but unmistakable opening of a cave. Since it wasn't on any of the maps and it was my job to check things like that out, I wasted no time in taking out my flashlight and heading towards the smaller, but manageable cave opening that was wide enough for me to step through without having to crouch down. The cave was situated in a clearing close to a pond. The opening was located right in the middle of a wall of sandstone and was fairly unremarkable looking. No sign that it was dangerous or out of the ordinary. Since the opening was barely wide enough for several people to step through, that meant the cave had never been turned into a mine. There was also no garbage lying around or any other traces of recent human activity. So for all I knew, I was the first human being to set foot in this cave and who knows how long. The feeling came with a sense of exhilaration I'd never felt before. So I took a deep breath, switched on my extra strength flashlight, and steadily started walking inside. My first few steps in the cave were beyond cautious. Aside from the fact I'd never been here before, the terrain was very steep. You could feel it slowly descending further into the earth. Since I didn't want to lose my footing and go tumbling down, I kept casting the flashlight beam around. Because despite the intense glaring light it provided, the darkness in the cave was unlike anything I had ever seen before. I'd been in the forest at night many times, but this far exceeded that. This darkness was dense. After enough careful steps, the descent became smoother, and the floor leveled out. 
The cave floor itself was rough in some spots and smooth in others. You could tell where the elements had weathered away parts of the land and made a smoother path to walk. The temperature had also dropped significantly down here, and I could now see the many impressive stalactites and stalagmites dotting the cave. The rough descent had been replaced by a fairly even path straight forward, but there wasn't a ton of space to walk around here. A small group of people could squeeze through, but no more than that. My boots occasionally crunched on gravel, but apart from that, the cave floor was empty. Almost uncannily clean. Seeing how untouched the cave was, it can't help but make you feel like an insignificant speck in the vast scheme of the universe. The cave was not only far older than I was, it would be here long after I was gone. Especially because the cave seemed endless. The more I explored, the more I got the sense that I was making no progress at all. A look at my watch told me I'd been down there for about an hour when the narrow path opened into a massive chamber and the sight made me gasp. The entire space was filled with water, and the walkway served as a makeshift bridge to the other side. The walls were rough-hewn and jagged virtually everywhere you looked. There had been plenty of impressive stalactites in the cave, but the ones dangling from the ceiling here were massive. So precise and sharp looking it seemed impossible that they had occurred naturally. Some of them were practically touching the water that filled the space. I had no idea how deep the water was, but in the thick darkness, it looked unnervingly deep. The walkway that went from one side of the cavern to the other got rougher here, but it still looked as steady and weathered as before. So, being more careful of where I stepped than ever, I slowly began to cross the cavern. I was almost halfway across when I heard the sound of a rock hit a cavern wall and splash into the water. The sound in the empty space seemed so uncannily loud I almost jumped. Once I was sure of my footing, I carefully shined the flashlight around to check. There was nothing. No signs that anything at all had happened. But on this job, you learn that just because everything looks fine doesn't mean nothing is going on. The hair standing up on the back of my neck told me everything I needed to know. I didn't dare take another step forward. If anything, I was slowly adjusting my footing to turn back around. I was just about to go back the way I came when I heard it. The sound of whispered voices. At first, I had no idea what it was. I hadn't heard a single sound before now aside from my own footsteps. Ignoring the chill slowly washing over me, I slowly began to walk back across the cavern. I'm not sure if it was just my imagination, but as I did, the whispering got louder. The creepiest part was how the voice seemed faintly familiar. Not enough so I recognized it, but enough that it was unsettling. The worst part was that I had absolutely no idea where the voice was coming from. The acoustics of the cave made it seem like the voice was both everywhere and nowhere at the same time. I was almost completely across the cavern when I cast my flashlight around and saw it. There, on the left side of the cavern in the middle of the dark water, was a shadow. With my heart pounding in my chest and the grip on my flashlight slick from sweat, I carefully turned and aimed the beam directly at it. The water illuminated was a murky gray, but the shape was as dark as it had been without the flashlight. I had no idea what the shape was. It was completely solid but it wasn't any sort of animal, and it didn't look remotely human. It just hung there, 
floating just below the surface. If there had been the slightest suggestion of human activity here, I'd say it was garbage, a blanket, or some clothing that fell in the water. But I knew that wasn't the case. The sight made my stomach clench. But then, with my flashlight still aimed right at it, it disappeared. There was no movement or any disturbance in the water. It just vanished. That was my cue to leave. Once I was safely across the cavern and on solid ground, I ran out of there as fast as I could do to the numerous rock formations I had to maneuver around. It seemed to take an eternity. I periodically checked behind me to make sure there was nothing there, and while there never was, I could never shake the feeling that something was watching me. After what seemed like a painfully long time, I finally arrived back at the cave opening. Then came the difficult task of maneuvering what was essentially an uphill climb. By now I was drenched in sweat and the climb did nothing to help that. But taking care with where and when I stepped, I eventually was standing at the mouth of the cave with daylight coming through. I gratefully walked out into the sunshine and looked down into the cave. As I did, I swear I saw a figure walk past on the cave floor below. But when I looked back, it was gone. Once I caught my breath, I radioed the cave discovery into the station and some other rangers came out to check it out. One of them was my boss, Jack. I told them I didn't see anything, but one look at me and my demeanor told them something was up. Jack was no stranger to the unusual things park rangers can and do encounter on the job. So with him and the other two rangers listening, I told them what I saw and experienced down in the cave. When I was done, Jack sat there quietly for a moment. Doesn't matter if it's 2022 or 1822, things still go bump in the night, he said in his deep, steady voice. I don't disagree. I muttered. I'm sure you don't wait. I won't pretend I saw what you saw, but I believe you saw what you saw. Nature can be, and often is, a very scary place. No kidding. One of the other rangers agreed. There's a reason this cave looks so untouched by people. No sign of animals either? None. Jack shook his head at that. That's the sign something is off. Animals don't go near something, that means people shouldn't either. So we'll mark this cave as dangerous, go back to base, and log the find. Now let's get out of here. I lived in the Hemas Mountains in New Mexico in the early 1990s. In the early fall, driving along an arroyo, I could see what appeared to be the light of a bonfire on the far side. There was a shadow of what appeared to be a man dancing around the fire. I assume it's someone from the local Pueblo, just hanging out, maybe practicing dancing for an upcoming feast. Not a usual thing to happen in an arroyo, though. My view of the scene was suddenly obstructed by a small hill. However, I knew that when I reached the other side, the angle provided a much better view of the whole area. As I passed the far side of the hill, I looked for the source of the light and shadows and. There's nothing there, which makes no sense. The light and shadows. I know what I saw. Confused, I pulled over and got out of the car and walked to the side of the hill to get a better look. There was nothing. No man. No fire. Just a cold, dark arroyo. That realization,
coupled with the fact that I'm a young woman standing on the side of the road in the middle of almost nowhere in the dead of night hits me like a bucket of ice water. I hustled my ass back to my car and drove away. Fast. Back in July of 2016 I ended up homeless and living out of my car, and in an attempt to make the best out of a bad situation I decided to take my savings and travel across the country. I didn't find a place to stay until late January 2017, so I have quite a few stories of weird shit happening during the six-ish months I was rolling around in absolute solitude. The creepiest thing, though, would probably be the day I spent in central Nevada. Nevada State Route 375 is a desolate stretch of land, flat and sandy save for the scrub brushes and the 300,000 head of cattle meandering through the 220-mile stretch of open range land. On either side of the road, at a distance that feels close but isn't, stand plateaued mountains as barren as the land itself, the walls of a racetrack long forgotten. The road is famous in certain circles for its affectionate nickname, the extraterrestrial highway, brought about because of its function as the only major road near Area 51. And, aside from the 54-person town just as many miles in, it's empty. After waking up at a gas station in Las Vegas, I powered north along Highway 93, a barren but not necessarily uninhabited road, high on the promise of adventure. I'm from a very large city on the East Coast, so places like that, Places where there's almost nothing but nature, are absolutely breathtaking to me. I saw a few cars, a few houses, and a few trees, so 93 seemed like a normal back road, and I expected 375 to be the same. Only when I got to the junction of the two did I realize things weren't going to be entirely what I'd expected. The first thing I saw was a large metal building, almost like a small plane hanger up on a hill with what looked like a poorly made statue of an alien standing by the main door. It was one of those campy tourist attractions, and there was no way I could leave the R without some kind of souvenir, so I pulled into the level dirt area at the base of the hill and parked. There wasn't a path to the building, though, so I climbed my way up the steep pile of sand on my hands and knees, chalking it up to part of the experience and went inside. Despite the fact that the door was open, the place was dark and empty. I wandered around for a little while, looking at rows of campy t-shirts eventually running to the restroom in the back, a little disappointed and more than a little creeped out. By the time I left, empty-handed save for a small pamphlet about the area that had been marked free, it was a little before 11. I kept driving, only then realizing how absolutely desolate 375 was compared to any other road I'd been on. I saw a few live cows, and the occasional cattle carcass, but other than that there was absolutely nothing, no trees, no people, no buildings, no grass, as far as the eye could see. It was the first time I'd ever been in anything that could truly be considered a desert. The map on the back of the brochure wasn't much of a map at all. It was a black line that was supposed to signify 375 and a red dot some ways to the east of it that was, apparently, Area 51. After about half an hour, I came to a spot that looked like a sandy turnaround on the side of the road with a bent stop sign facing out randomly into the desert, and I figured that had to be it. So, 
Against all better judgment, I turned my little silver VW sedan off the paved highway and drove. And drove, and drove, and drove. There were no signs, just me driving across the open desert towards something I wasn't even sure actually existed. I realized, then that I had no cell service, and probably hadn't for quite some time. If I got a flat tire, or ran out of gas, or got lost, I would have no way to call for help. But, because I had come that far, I decided to keep going. Some indeterminate amount of time later, I came across a crumbling farmhouse? Barn? Wooden building? Smack in the middle of nowhere, and I decided, at least, that I was heading in the right direction. There was one sign, an ominous looking wooden arrow painted bright neon green, the kind of color you usually associate with little green men, so I kept going. Reaching the entrance to Area 51 was just as startling as it was anticlimactic. I was in the desert, far away from the rock bowl walls, and then suddenly the base of the mountain was right in front of me. There was a barbed wire coil on the ground and a sign that said Air Force Property, no trespassing, no drones, no photography or something like that right at the edge, with nothing discernible on the other side. Being the wild, rebellious kid I am, I took pictures anyway. That's where it starts to get kind of weird. I'd done what I came to do, so I turned my car around and started heading back the direction I'd come. It's important to note that, on my way to Area 51, I traveled in a straight line, and going back toward the main road, I also traveled in a straight line. Yet somehow, after another length of indeterminate time, I never came across that farmhouse again. The panic started to set in, because I couldn't see the road in the distance and I couldn't see that crumbling building in any direction, so I drove faster than I probably should have across the rough desert. In an effort to keep myself from getting a flat or losing control of the car, I turned on cruise control, but it kept cutting out for some reason and my car would roll to a complete stop if I wasn't paying attention. I spent the better part of however long I was out there freaking the F out because I wasn't sure if I was going the right direction, and the sun hadn't seemed to move across the sky at all, I had no way to tell if I was going west or northwest or southwest or what. I never saw that building again, and when I finally made my way back to 300. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 75. I was on a different portion of the road than the one I'd initially turned off. No stop sign, no turnaround, just cracked pavement. I decided to keep going along 375 in hopes of finding the town that I knew was there, and happened to glance at the clock in my car. I thought I had been keeping track of how long I'd been in the desert, looking down every few seconds, and the lack of solar movement had me convinced I'd been off the main road for maybe an hour at most. Except it was nearly 3 o'clock. I had spent almost 4 hours searching for Area 51 and then making my way back, and had absolutely no idea that much time had passed. The entire experience was surreal. I never actually found the town that was supposedly out there, just a bar, where I stopped to fill up my gallon jugs of water. There were three people inside, no cars in the parking lot, and, according to the bartender, no other buildings for 110 miles. I didn't bother fact-checking or asking about Rachel Nevada. She told me that I'd die out in the desert if I didn't have a full tank of gas, and that even if I did I'd probably die anyway because the roads weren't maintained and the cattle had a tendency to collapse in the middle of the highway and rot there, a hazard. I thanked her, got in my car, and turned the F around. By the time I hit Highway 93 I was driving well over 118 miles per hour, convinced that there was something more to the overwhelming emptiness of the place, and that it would follow me back to the interstate. I still have so many questions about everything that happened that day, why did I end up at a different part of the road than I'd started? How the F did 4 hours pass without my noticing? Where did the people in the bar come from? Why was there a bar out there in the first place? What was that first metal building I'd come across and why was it open but empty? It was an irrational, unfounded terror, likely born from the fact that, as a city girl, I've never been anywhere so desolate. But damn if that shit wasn't genuinely creepy as hell. There is a place up in Vermont known as Green Mountain National Forest. It takes up around 50% of Bennington County, surrounding the Glastonbury Mountains at its center, and between the years of 1943 and 1950, several mysterious disappearances took place in its deep, dark forests. The disappearances became so prolific that the area took on a new name among frightened locals, the Bennington Triangle due to some similarities with disappearances around the Caribbean island of Bermuda. Since that time, the disappearances became an entranced part of local folklore, and to this day, the area's occupants warn against wandering alone in the Green Mountain National Forest. Before the 18th century, the Glastonbury area was mostly uninhabited by European settlers. The governor of New Hampshire chartered the town in 1761, and by 1791, just six families called the tiny community home. Yet today, merely eight residents remain within the ruins of Glastonbury's ghost town. 
It enjoyed something of a boom in about 1870 when it became a logging town, and as many as 300 timber workers moved into Glastonbury to harvest the surrounding forests. But overlogging of the mountain decimated the trees and eventually led to the town's economic decline. Perhaps the logging damage to the habitats of the local wildlife led to the Native Americans believing that the new industry had disturbed and angered the spirits of the forest. Or maybe the Glastonbury curse was something more entirely more menacing. However, it is tough to discern just how much of what people say about the Bennington Triangle is actually true. Details surrounding the various vanishing have varied over the years, even down to the particulars of those that actually went missing. But what is clear, is that for eons before European settlers ever occupied the area, the local Native American peoples used the area as a burial ground for their dead. Believing that the spirits of their ancestors inhabited the forests, and would curse anyone who strayed too far into the dark and isolated woods, they stayed well away from the area. But the same could not be said for those that traveled from across the Atlantic. One particularly eerie piece of folklore from the Abenaki tribe tells of a rock that ate the souls of all that passed near. Which to them, explained by the woods were so devoid of the typical sounds of nature, such as bird songs or the buzzing of insects, and why many attested to such frightening sensations while hunting near the woods. However there may well be some actual science behind such claims, as geologists say the area has an unusually large amount of sinkholes due to subterranean water erosion. But regardless, the list of those declared missing after venturing into the forests is long indeed. And these are just a few of them. In 1943, a man named Carl Herrick and his cousin, Henry, were taking part in a hunting trip just 10 miles northeast of Glastonbury town. The story goes that one point during their trip, Carl walked off into the woods to relieve himself. Yet after some time, Carl still hadn't returned to the spot they were resting at, so Henry called out through the woods to him, only to receive no reply. For hours and hours his cousin searched for him, but Carl was nowhere to be found. Over the following days, a search party scoured the woods for any sign of Carl Herrick, and eventually a body was found that was believed to be his. But his remains showed bizarre sign of having been crushed by some ungodly force, so badly that Carl's rib had punctured his lung, but there were no signs of anything that could have possibly inflicted such wounds. Henry is reported to have said that the search party found that there were large bear prints around the corpse. But a bear would not have squeezed a man to death nor would it have left fresh meat to spoil like that, being the occasional scavenger animals that they are. Something must have severely spooked that beat if it left a corpse alone like what? Just two years later in 1945, the Mitty Rivers incident occurred. Mitty was a very experienced and hardy outdoorsman, and very few people knew the forests around Green Mountain better than he did. But one day, Mitty was heading up a hunting party in a place known as Hell's Hollow, when he happened to stray a little too far ahead. Soon, it dawned on his fellow hunters that Mitty was no longer with them, but none of the hunters showed any initial concern. After all, Mitty was probably the most skilled hunter and tracker that any of them had ever known. It had to just a matter of time before he found them again, yet no one ever saw or heard from him, ever again. After a long and intensive search of the surrounding woods, 
The only trace of Mitty Rivers was an empty rifle cartridge that matched up with the kind he was known to use. There was no blood or shredded clothing left behind, no evidence of an animal attack whatsoever, and his corpse was never found. But perhaps the most well-known of all the Bennington Triangle disappearances is the case of Paula Weldon. She was a sophomore student at the nearby Bennington University, and on the 1 ST of December, 1946, 18-year-old Paula headed out into the woods on a short hike intended to relieve the stress of her studies. Paula was wearing a light red jacket, not ideal for a lengthy hike in cold weather, so it is safe to say that she had not intended to be out for a particularly long time. She was last sighted by a couple out for a walk on a stretch of land known as Long Trail. They witnessed Paula turn a corner, but when they reached the same spot, she had inexplicably vanished from sight, and it would be hard to miss such a bright red jacket among the dark foliage. The following day, when her classmates noticed her unusual absence, they informed the local police who commenced an thorough search of the long trail. The search party was a thousand strong at times, even included a number of light aircraft enlisted by the FBI. But still, not a trace of Paula was found anywhere. Paula was by far the most famous case, but the most tragic was that of eight-year-old Paul Jeffson. Paul's mother was employed by the local garbage dump, and on the 12th of October, 1950, Paul accompanied his mother to work since he was off school for the holiday. They didn't intend to stay long at all, so Paul's mother told him to stay put in the truck while she popped into the dump's office to complete a few pieces of paperwork. But when she got back to the truck, Paul was gone. Much like Paula Weldon, Paul was wearing a brightly colored rain jacket that would be almost impossible to miss on the backdrop of the surrounding woods. But when another huge search was mounted, which this time included sniffer dogs from the local police force, nothing was found. It was as if Paul had vanished into thin air. But analysis of local Abenaki folklore found a disturbing titbit of information regarding the wearing of bright colors in the forest. Apparently, it is extremely bad luck to wear anything but dark shades while visiting Native American burial grounds, as it offends the spirits of the dead, a truly terrifying detail to consider. In the same month, October of 1950, a young woman named Frida Langer and her family were on a camping trip near the Somerset Reservoir, deep within the Bennington Triangle. Frida and her cousin Herbert set off on a hike around the area, but less than a mile into their little adventure, Frida took a tumble and landed in a stream. But given they weren't all that far from their campsite, Frida turned back to get a change of clothes, while Herbert waited at the site of her accident for her return. After an hour or so of waiting, Herbie walked back to camp, outraged that his cousin would leave him waiting so long, but when he asked after her, he discovered she'd never made it back to camp. Her disappearance was completely unexplainable, and many puzzled over how a girl could possibly vanish over the course of such a short journey. And by this time, the number of inexplicable vanishings meant that the woods had garnered quite the reputation as being mysteriously but undeniably dangerous. It also seems like the power of the Bennington Triangle is not just confined to the woods. James Tedford, a veteran of World War II, was returning to his residence at a VA hospital in Bennington during 1949, after a visit to some of his family in nearby St. Albans. 
His journey was via a Greyhound bus that held no more than 14 other passengers, but somehow, when the bus arrived in Bennington, Tedford wasn't on board. Yet strangely, not only was his luggage still in the bus's rack, but personal items belonging to Tedford, including a jacket and his ticket, were sitting on his seat in his place. The other passengers were later questioned by police when he was reported missing. But not a single one reported seeing him disembark at any point on the journey, in fact, they had seen him sitting in his seat at every single scheduled stop, just not the one he was due to get off at, Bennington. Since Tedford's disappearance was yet another in a series of mysterious vanishings in the Bennington area, police were eager to get to the bottom of the case as quickly as possible. But logically speaking, they could only settle on one solid conclusion, that Tedford has never boarded the bus in the first place. But this stood in stark contrast to the fact that, not only was his luggage on board, but he had been sighted by many of his fellow passengers. Like many of the other disappearances in the Bennington Triangle, Tedford's case remains totally unsolved to this day. But there must be practical, tangible explanations for such vanishings, even if they seem fairly outlandish. One theory centers around the intense, unpredictable weather patterns that the New England area suffers from. Professional hikers and mountaineers alike insist that the disappearances are down to nothing more than poor weather. Since wind patterns in the area can be incredibly erratic, even those familiar with the area could lose their footing in perilous situations, or suffer from serious disorientation in some cases. However, although this might account for one or two of the missing persons, it certainly does not account for all of them. Many visitors to the area have also reported seeing cougars in the Green Mountain National Forest. These big cats can stalk hikers for long distances while waiting for an opportune moment to strike. Lone hikers are by far the most at risk, especially during the winter when the mountain lion's natural prey is scarce, which also happens to be when the majority of disappearances have occurred. Because they can weigh more than 200 pounds, a powerful cougar can subdue and kill someone very quickly. But a mountain lion would most certainly leave behind traces of their kills, be it bones or shredded clothing, and in most of the Bennington disappearances, not a single piece of evidence of the unfortunate souls has been found. However, another theory, one rooted in mental illness, is much more feasible. One story tells of a bizarre character by the name of McDowell moving to Bennington in 1892, looking for work at a local sawmill. The man was a solitary, quiet soul, brimming with malcontent, and was viewed with suspicion and fear by the other workers. Then, after a few months of floating from job to job, he got into an argument with a foreman, and smashed the man over the head with a hammer before slaying another that came to the foreman's defense. The man was ranting and raving as local lawmen cornered him in one of the town's taverns, and once he was in custody, he was confined to an insane asylum for the foreseeable future. But the man was wild, violent and cunning. And it didn't take long for him to escape the asylum and escape into the mountains to hide among their many caves and caverns. Some say the horrendous environment of the asylum, the callous abuse of the orderlies and doctors, had turned him well and truly feral. And every so often, the man would descend from the mountains to terrorize the residents of the town, wearing only a long black coat, with a pistol in his hand.
McDowell may have been able to prey upon the town's residents during the early 1900s, but by the middle of the century, he will have been a much older man, and may not have even survived in the wilderness for such a considerable length of time. Perhaps it'll never be entirely certain what is to blame for the bizarre disappearances in the Bennington Triangle. Be it the weather, wild animals or a deranged serial killer, the area is without a doubt one of the most inexplicably dangerous places in the entirety of the United States for those who are unlucky enough to find themselves alone among the trees there. And it is truly chilling to think that these disappearances might never be solved, that the fates of those poor souls might be forever be kept a secret, hidden among the mountains and forests of the Green Mountain National Forest. Camping in the middle of nowhere, I made some soup near my campsite, added some jerky to make it kind of like a stew, and then dumped the leftovers in the lake near my campsite. Now when you do this, you often get critters who are attracted to the site, but I usually don't worry about it. So I wasn't freaked out when I went to bed in my tent, and I heard the normal noise of raccoons and squirrels getting close to it and probably trying to find some tasty jerky stew. But I was freaked out when I heard the raccoons scatter like maniacs like 15 minutes later. Then I heard a much larger animal approaching, but I barely heard any footsteps, just rustling of leaves. I only figured out what it was when I heard literal wolf howling, really close to my tent. They seemed to wander off after a little while but I didn't sleep there the next night and I didn't leave my tent until it was daylight. I was a merchant marine at one point in my life. I sailed for an outfit that had about seven ships and when I started I was bounced around serving time on different ships at two weeks a time. One ship was a single belt clam shell type unloader which took only one guy to operate the gates down in the hull. Basically I would pull levers which would open up a gate and drop product onto the conveyor belt and this process could do up to 12 hours depending on the product. Every cargo hold had its own set of gates and bulkhead with a man door that can be closed to seal off the hold in case of a hull breach. I hated unloading this one ship because it was haunted. For hours on end I could feel a presence near me, I could hear chains being rattled, bulkhead doors opening and closing, whispering and shadows, and towards the end of the unload it was common to be standing in a foot of water and could hear footsteps splashing through. After a while it didn't bother me too much and I would just wish it would help me out. I've seen some crazy shit out there in the Great Lakes. Traveling has always been one of my passions. I have one of those maps of the United States, where you fill it in with pictures from each state. In the state's shape and everything like that. I have traveled to probably a third of the country, and I have stories from every state. That none beat the story of my last trip to West Virginia. This story sounds crazy and I understand if you think I'm making it up. Everyone I've told thinks that. You read listeners' stories though, so I'm pretty sure you won't think I'm crazy. At least that's what I'm hoping for. I want this story heard because maybe it will help someone else who needs to hear that they aren't alone. That someone else has seen, whatever this thing was. I always drive when I travel because that's half of the adventure. I had been on the road for a while, 
driving from Oklahoma to West Virginia, is about a 15-hour drive with no traffic. So I stopped off for the night at a hotel. This allowed me to pick up a postcard to mail home along the way. Another little tradition that I like to do when I travel through a state. I know that the next thing I tell you is when you're going to think I'm crazy. I was a few miles outside of Point Pleasant. I had stayed longer in Mount Vernon, Illinois than I had intended. So it was just around dusk as I was traveling eastbound. My destination was within 20 miles. I was jamming out to some old classic country bouting out George Strait, when something caught my eye. I slowed down and rubbed my eyes to make sure I wasn't seeing things. I was really struggling to understand what was happening, because I had just seen a huge gray man with wings spanned at least 10 feet. Flying right next to my car. I shook my head and pulled over. Maybe I was just too tired. I sat in my car and decided maybe I needed a short nap. I set a timer on my phone to wake me in 15 minutes, but I couldn't go to sleep. I closed my eyes and immediately I could see the creature in my mind. I finally gave up and decided to finish heading into town. I pulled back onto the road and had barely rounded a curve, when a hunched over figure appeared in a field directly in front of me. The thing was huge when I first saw it I swear it had red eyes. But as my headlights hit its face the eyes reflected back at me. I saw slammed on my brakes. I was so freaked out. I really didn't understand what was going on. I watched this thing watch me. Eventually it shifted, turning it to gaze elsewhere and kinda shuffling away. So I started to continue my trip. It wasn't long before new motion out of my side window caught my eye. I gasped and hit the gas the thing was following me. It ran like a kid who was just learning to run all awkward and unsure. But when it opened its wings and took to the sky, I couldn't outrun it. I sped out nearing 80 miles per hour but it still kept up. Its red eyes staring at me the whole time. So I increased my speed again. Now I'm going at least 90 miles an hour as I desperately try to outrun this thing. I was beginning to panic, I had no idea what was going on or what this thing was but I wanted far away from it. Whatever it was never stopped following me. Not until I hit the outskirts of the town. As I started to pass houses it slowly fell behind. Still watching me, I could see its red eyes in my rearview mirror. The sight was enough to leave me shaken to my core. As I reached town my grip on the steering wheel loosened. I laughed out loud. I seriously have one heck of an imagination, but I was not ready for what was coming next. I was checking into the hotel. The clerk was being nice and was making small talk. And I'm sure I looked terrified and crazy, but she kept chatting away. She gave me my room number and my key card and as I said, thank you she asked if I was traveling alone. When I said yes, she asked me if I was okay. I looked like I was running from something. I didn't think I should tell her what I saw so I just told her that I had an odd experience on the highway heading in and was ready to turn in for the night, she nodded and I headed to my room. I laid in that bed for hours. Trying to justify the creature. Until my hunger got the best of me and I decided to find a fast food place to grab a quick bite to eat. I was pulling into the drive through when the red eyes appeared again. I screamed, I couldn't help it. I was so exhausted and I just didn't have it in me to keep acting like things didn't faze me.
I wasn't alone this time though. The car ahead of me started honking. And the passenger was excitedly pointing ahead of us in the same direction. They didn't seem overly afraid though. At least I'm not the only one who can see whatever this is. Was all I could think. I'd completely lost my appetite though. Headed back to the hotel, pulled the blanket over my head and prayed for morning. I tried talking to my family about this when I got home, but they told me that my stories just get more and more creative. I gave up eventually but I do need someone to tell me if they have seen the same thing. So we were boy scout camping in November, working on stuff and getting red for the Klondike campout, which is when we go out to Mount Taylor and camp out in the snow. It's a competition sled race thingy, kinda neat. Anyways, we were on the way back, and we noticed a bunch of trash at a campground with a cabin, and we always took the motto leave it better than you found it seriously. It was only me, one of the scoutmasters, and a kid, let's call him Tom. Anyways, we find all kinds of just beer cans, food wrappers and boxes so we are picking these things up, and I go up to the cabin to see if anybody is home. It's one of those old camping cabins, with spaces for cots and sleeping bags, a fireplace slash chimney, but it's partially open. Anyways, no sleeping bags or gear or anything, but there was a suitcase. I tell my scoutmaster, we start hollering, anybody there? Hello? No answer. We sit and wait about 15 minutes, and we go back to the suitcase. Looked like a camera gear case, but inside was over $75,000. My scoutmaster started to bug out a bit. It was only us three, and the rest of the patrol had already headed back to town. After looking around for a few more minutes, we find that on the doorway of the cabin, to the right, there were bullets embedded. There were four of them, as if somebody was firing at the doorway. We couldn't find any more bullet holes or anything, but we were starting to get creeped out. What the hell happened? What was going on? My scoutmaster, in the end decided to take the case, and tell the rangers about it. In the end we got the money, nobody ever came back about the case, and we donated most of it to local charities with a little bit going to the troop for campsite repairs, church fees, etc. crazy stuff, now it reminds me a bit of that movie No Country for Old Men. For the better part of my 20s I lived deep in the forests of Washington. Between the lush woods and the lively coast to the west. Each year it feels as though dozens of local homes come forward with some tale about a cryptid encounter. And as I'm sure you know, anytime someone encounters a cryptid they simultaneously forget how to work a camera. But real or not real, cryptids are an interesting personality trait of Washington and one of the main reasons I haven't moved closer to the city of Seattle. Which I dearly love. Each Thursday evening I find myself excited to attend the Cryptid Council. It's a weekly meeting, where individuals come together to share their experiences. Every so often we plan trips to locations of recent sightings. One particular Thursday. The day before Halloween actually an elderly woman attended our meeting in shambles. After claiming to have encountered a Sasquatch-like figure just hours before that afternoon. You should have seen the way we, my friends and the council and I, 
sprung to our feet. Never had an encounter been reported to the group so quickly. And it just so happened we were itching to have an outing over the holiday weekend. In no time we made the executive decision to call off work the following day. In a scramble home in packer bags and head out before it got too dark. Our destination really just an extension of this woman's backyard. Was about 40 minutes away from my house. So by the time we had made it to the woods, and set up our camping equipment the sun was nearly set. Now by no means were any of us jumping at the opportunity to take part in a camping trip where we actually thought something scary would show face. After all, nothing like that had ever happened before. So what gave us the reason to believe it would now? It was more so an excuse for the four of us guys to eat junk food, drink cheap whiskey out of flasks, and to tell ghost stories around a portable fire pit. A boy's weekend if you will. So as you can imagine, come about 2am we were all awoken by the most guttural yelping we've ever heard. We were taken aback. In situations like that you don't spend a significant amount of time being groggy and waking up. It's like your instincts shoot along your spine. And we were all immediately on high alert. Tony was the first to say what we were all thinking when he asked. What the hell was that? Standing up from the ground a wind caught my nose. Carrying with it the most foul stench of urine and B.O. I quickly assessed our immediate surroundings and having not seen anything, made quick work of smothering the remaining ashes of our fire as to minimize our visibility. Before any of us had the opportunity to ask anything else or conjure up a possible response to Tony's question. A series of deafening whooping noises filled the air. Chilling us to the bone. Charlie was the first of the group to sprint away, and none of us had to say a word. We were all right behind him with no hesitation. After about 30 seconds of running we came barreling into the back door of the elderly woman's home. Who'd left a door unlocked in case we needed to use the restroom in the middle of the night. We quickly locked the door, pulled the blinds and in each staged ourselves at the various windows lining the back side of the house to peek outside. When the woman appeared appeared at the top of the stairs asking us what was going on, we quickly hushed her and turned our attention back to the outdoors. And that's when it stepped in the view. Emerging like a giant, even amongst the towering trees surrounding it, this thing must have been every bit of 11 feet tall. With dark brown fur covering it from head to toe minus its bare face. It walked on two legs, almost like an ape but there was something humanoid about it too like Neanderthal with beady eyes and a projecting mouth. We were all frozen in place and didn't dare to make a sound from within the house. I was certain that if we did and this thing wanted to, it would have easily busted through the back door. Realistically it must have stalked around the backyard for only a minute or so before vanishing into the woods from which it came. But truth be told, it felt like an eternity watching it. At the first sign of the coast being clear we all huddled upstairs as to make the least noise possible and called 911. When the cops arrived we were cleared to evacuate the property. The woman was taken to a local motel for the foreseeable few nights. And the boys and I packed back into my jeep and hightowered it back to my house. A much safer 40 minutes away. The police never got back in contact with any of us after that night leaving my friends and I to believe that nothing was uncovered regarding whatever it was we saw in that backyard. But after that, 
We never participated in a cryptid council outing again. Of course the group ragged on us for returning with a hell of a story but no picture to support our case but we didn't even care. We all knew what we saw that night. Even if it's not something we could explain away with words. And that in itself was enough for us all to decide to eat junk food and drink cheap whiskey from the comfort of our own homes from then on.